Hello and welcome to another edition of ITC Entertain the World podcast with myself, Jazz Wiseman. And as always, I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Evening, Jazz. Very well, thank you. Hi, Jazz. All good, thank you. Today, we are going to talk about probably one of the most fondly remembered ITC series, Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. This is a show that stars Mike Pratt as Jeff Randall, down on his luck, sort of private investigator, Kenneth Cope, his partner, who is the ghost, and Annette Andre, who's Marty Hopkirk's widow, and eventually begins to work in the business. It was a series created and produced by Monty Berman and Dennis Spooner, and it was made back-to-back with Department S, another series they produced, which we've talked about in one of our podcasts, and it was made at Elstree Studios, 1968-69. And as I say, it's probably one of the most fondly remembered ITC shows, certainly when we've sort of hinted at discussing this. There's a lot of love for this series, and I think that that probably comes down to not only the original broadcast, but the huge amount of fans it picked up in the mid-1980s ITV repeats, and then the subsequent BBC Two repeats in the ni- early 90s. It's an interesting concept in that it's one of the few, if not the only, ITC series that Lou Grade took a chance on without importing an international lead. So it does stand out in that respect. And it's said that he didn't have initially a great deal of faith in it because it struck him as an odd subject. But luckily, Ralph Smart the sort of founding father of Danger Man, Robin Hood, that sort of thing, jumped at it and said, I want to do this and I want to write the first two scripts. And I think it was very different. I tend to think of 60s ITC as being sort of glamour, global. And here we've got a series set almost exclusively in Britain, mostly in London, and it's quite a seedy London. And I think that makes it, gives it a slightly different appeal. Jeff Randall is quite a sort of down at heel, for want of a better word, verging into seedy at some times, it would seem, when you get the impression that it was a business that was only just about um, keeping its head above water. Yes, I quite agree there. And the interesting that you point out there, Rodney, about London, because a lot of this is sort of late night London and sort of rainy London, which is quite a different contrast to, say, Strange Report, which was being made around the similar time, which obviously is a, has London, but it's much more of a sort of mod, swinging, vibrant London. This is very much, like you say, dark and dingy. And I really like that. Obviously, we've watched the episodes and some of them, they start off late at night and Jeff's sort of outside watching someone because he's on a case or Marty's wandering the streets, sort of looking a bit forlorn and lost. And I love that sort of late night atmosphere that actually London isn't all singing and dancing. Actually, there's a lot of, a bit like the underbelly that we saw in Gideon's Way. There's still that dark seediness that a lot of London is like, really. He's an inquiry agent and... He's often dealing with sort of divorce cases. They're not sort of glamorous cases involving politicians or 
international businessmen. A lot of the time, it's fairly rundown stuff. There is, by definition, a strong streak of almost melancholia that runs through Randall and Hopkirk because you've got a guy who's lost his best friend. He's on his uppers. And as Jazz said, when you see Marty, sometimes you see Marty just wandering around the empty streets of London. This is all sort of built on by Edwin Astley's brilliant score, which is the fourth lead in this program, as far as I'm concerned. You've only got to hear a snippet of it, and it brings you that atmosphere straight away. I know it's, it's got moments of comedy in the program, but there's an, an underlying sort of downbeat thread, I think. You're right. It's interesting that he returned to the harpsichord, which he'd used so brilliantly in the hour-long Danger Mans and then had sort of moved on in subsequent series and then returned to this. And it does have a melancholy feel, like you say. And in particular, I love the music at the start of But What a Sweet Little Room, which is an episode we'll come on to later. That sort of introductory theme as they're driving through the country and stuff is is heard again and again in Randall and it's so recognisable and it's kind of, it's got that sort of sadness to it. And it fits in perfectly with Mike Pratt's character. I mean, this is a world of hangovers, seedy offices, the rents due, divorce cases, laundrette lunches. It all sort of fits beautifully together. We should talk about the casting you mentioned there mike pratt who i think is really great in this role because he's he's got that sort of craggy look he can do the sort of bleary eyed early mornings late nights we're not sure where they sort of split and he's brilliant at interacting with kenneth cope who plays marty i know that there was some talk originally of the irish comedian dave allen being cast as jeff randall I'm not quite convinced that he would have been able to um, pull it off personally. No, when you look at Mike Pratt, there is so much more to him as an actor that I think didn't strike a lot of people at the time. Even though we'd seen him in bit parts in other ITC programmes, I think a lot of the general public thought this was like an overnight success story. But this guy is a really good actor after Randall and Hopkirk. He drops out of television. He does six months of Shakespeare with the RSC. There is no way that Dave Allen would have had those skills. Could we say to a certain extent, Mike Pratt 
is playing Mike Pratt in that we know that in his personal life, he obviously had problems with drink, etc. And you almost get the feeling when he turns up either in his flat first thing in the morning or in the office with a hangover, he's sort of almost playing himself. There are stories, aren't there, of champagne flowing on the set and the stars being somewhat worse for wear mm. every now and then on set. Essentially, got Mike as Mike, who liked to drink, smoked his French cigarettes, and Jeff Randall, there are some strong similarities. And then you've got Kenny, who was always the practical joker and one of the primary drivers to bring more comedy into the series. You mentioned Kenneth Cope. That's the next person we should talk about the casting of, because a bit like Mike Pratt, I don't think he was generally considered to be first choice. It happened that Cyril Frankel came across Ken one night in an Italian restaurant, and they did a little screen test. That screen test turns up in one of the title sequences that we'll obviously end up talking about. In 2005, I interviewed Kenneth Cope as part of the DVD extras for Umbrella. Here he is talking about the casting. The casting was um, quite interesting, really. They cast Michael, and he was cast first, and he was so kind and nice to me. I'd never worked with him. But if, if ever you want to get a smashing part on telly, take your wife out to a restaurant and make her laugh. Because that's what I did. And Cyril Frankel, the director, was sitting next to me at the, the next table, and I was making my wife, Rennie, uh, laugh her head off about something or other. Cyril Frankel was next door, and he went back. The following morning, he rang Lou Gray and said, I found the ghost. But Michael came back from the studio and told me, knocked on my door, we'd never met, apart from the, the film test we did, and he said, you've got the part. I mean, at this point, you've got to remember that Ken was fairly well established. He'd done his stint on Coronation Street, and he had a very strong grounding in comedy because he'd been doing That Was the Week That Was. So in terms of the three of them, he had the highest public profile. When you say there was no international lead, I did sort of laugh there to myself because I was thinking, has Smudge realised that Annette Andre is Australian? I'm only teasing you there, Smudge, because I know what you meant really was that they didn't go for a handsome American lead actor. Annette Andre, of course, a familiar face to anyone who'd been watching ITC series because she'd been in The Saint numerous occasions. She'd been in The Baron, been in all these shows that we all love. I think it was just a kind of case of she was eventually going to get the lead in one of Monty's series. I mean, I had heard that she was considered for the champions, but they wanted to go with Alexandra. And they said to Annette, we owe you one. You know, her chance came with this. And again, I think she was perfectly cast and she did a brilliant job. In 2005, I interviewed Annette Andre for the DVD extras. Here she is talking about the casting. I didn't really want to do a series. I thought, oh, I'm going to be typecast. And then just after that, of course, they offered me Randall and Hopkirk, which I had, I sort of agonized about for a bit and thought, oh, do I want to do a series? And then it sounded fun. I thought it was different. And that's what I liked. That's, I think, why I did it. And I knew Mike Pratt. I'd worked with him and I liked him very much. Well, she said herself that she was considered as Sharon McCready and she felt that Jeannie was a better part for her. She has said in public that she knew where she was in that at that time. She was the pretty girl with a pair of legs and she was going to be the clothes horse. Much as it is a starring role, I would argue that in terms of drama and acting, her other ITC guest roles gave her far more than her starring role in Randall and Hopcook. Well, you consider her part in the nightlifers where she's part of a gang 
here I tend to remember her wonderful, colourful dresses and suits and things. As the series progresses, she does get involved a bit more. Mike and Ken were pushing for her to be more involved, and rightly so. But as you say, some of her previous ITC roles did give her more to chew on than a lot of what she had to do in some of the particularly early episodes of this series. Mm. Here's Annette Andre again. We worked well together, and I liked it because they were inventive and creative, and we'd often spend time after the day was finished stay on at the studio to discuss the script or what was coming next or possible ideas that we could give to particularly Ken and Mike. They were very good at that. And in fact, I think it was really through them that my part became enlarged somewhat because, you know, I, they, they didn't involve me a lot in the beginning. Women weren't involved a lot in those days. That gradually when we all talked about it, and I said, you know, I think she should be doing this and this. So I became more involved in the series. Now, I noticed with this that the, you mentioned Ralph Smart there so much earlier, who wrote the first two episodes. But predominantly, this series is written between two writers, Donald James and Tony Williamson. And yes, there are some other writers involved, including Mike Pratt, actually, which we'll come on to. The majority of this show is kind of split between the two. I thought that was quite an interesting take in some ways, because we've seen that with The Baron, where the field of writers was limited and we thought the series suffered. But I don't think the series suffers too much here in the respect of Donald James and Tony Williamson writing a decent amount of scripts each. I think the, the fundamental point for this is like, as we said with Department S in the, one of the other podcasts, Department S, the thing was set an enigma at the start and see how it unfolds down to the wrap up. That was the challenge for the writers, set that first puzzle. With Randall and Hopkirk, clearly the linchpin is Marty's interaction with the living world. That's the big thing. As Dennis Spooner is quoted as saying, if somebody could invent a new way or a different way for Marty to contact the living when he needed to, he would give him a story. And that was it. There's not a great, by any means, any great drama to Randall and Hopkirk. But in terms of creativeness, there were a lot of places for the writers to go. So you don't end up with a situation like the Baron where some of the things feel a bit samey. And we don't have the same problem that we had on the Baron with it being sort of studio bound, etc. either. Another point that I'd like to discuss is the two title sequences. I was reading up on the network Blu-rays about this, mm -hmm. and I've got a theory about the graveyard titles. When this was first broadcast in 1969, 1970, those graveyard titles were the ones that went out. But if you read the network Blu-ray sets, you'll see that the 80s titles, the sort of what I call orange handprint ones, are the titles that are in the original negatives and the interpos. Now, the interpos is like a backup negative. So the graveyard titles were inserted just prior to broadcast. It's a sort of last minute thing. Now, those titles were also used in the United States of America. But instead of saying Randall and Hopkirk, it says My Partner the Ghost because the series was retitled there. 
because they were unsure the American viewing audience would understand the word deceased. My theory is with that is that they shot the titles and they were going to use those for the American market. But then when they started doing it, they thought, oh, we might as well just use these as well for the English ones because we're doing the work. And those are the ones that went out in the late 60s, early 70s, and then the subsequent repeats. But of course, if you were new to the series in the 80s, you are familiar with the orange hand title sequence as being the originals. It's quite an interesting point that there were two title sequences. And I have to say that I personally prefer the orange title sequences. I find the only you, Jeff, graveyard ones, they look cheap. And the reason they look cheap is because it was Kenneth Cope's screen test. I did that. I'm just not quite convinced by them, really. I prefer the other ones. The other ones are much more stylish, I think. What I can't understand is why we get this mix and match now. We get the, the graveyard sequence and then we get the fundamental production credits in the orange hand. Did they not develop the graveyard into cover Dennis and Monty or because it was the screen test and it was a crop short print? For me, one of the problems with the graveyard titles is, of course, it means that we see him at his funeral before he's actually killed in the introductory episode, which is a little bit bizarre. I prefer the orange hand ones, controversial as that might be. They're a little bit seedy as well, which fits Mm. in with the programme, aren't they? Yeah. I don't need to be reminded that he's a ghost every week. Jazz, like you said, you thought it looked a bit cheap. It does look a bit cheap. You can see the cracks and the other titles just seem to flow better. Also, of course, as the series develops, that only you, Jeff, becomes a bit of a joke because it certainly isn't only you, Jeff. (laughs) Only you, Jeff, and Mrs. Pleasance, and whoever else. One of the things about Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, in terms of its international sales, it wasn't really that successful for ITC. Yes, it sold to Australia. And the stars were on the front of their version of the TV Times magazine. And there was a big deal made about it, particularly because obviously Annette Andre was Australian. It did sell into some other countries. It didn't do well in America. It wasn't sold into France, for example, where all the other ITC shows were. So it's a bit of an odd one in that way. And here it seemed to be scattered around the various regions. Now, obviously, we know that ITV at the time was all very regional and some of the series were shown, say, on a Friday and others were shown on a Thursday and different times. But Randall and Hopkirk did seem to suffer with a sort of very scattergun approach to its broadcast around the country. It didn't set the world on fire here. I've got no sort of record of it hitting the top 20 in the Jigtar figures or whatever they're called. And as you say, it was very much at the whim of the schedulers. There's at least one region, it might have been Anglia, where on the initial run, it hit back to back with Department S. So you'd have Department S, and then the next hour you'd have Randall and Hopkirk. And I think Cyril Frankel, in one of his interviews, nails this. He says, the reason we didn't go so well with Randall and Hopkirk was at that point, there were just too many similar series. And that may have really been its downfall. And the bulk of the affection for Randall and Hopkirk and the reminiscence of Randall and Hopkirk, I think probably comes out of the subsequent repeats. It got a critical mauling 
when it first came out. But over the years, people saw it again. It was used as filler afternoon slots and they really rather warmed to it. And of course, as you say, in the, in the eighties and nineties, it really had a renaissance again. And it's a shame because when you say smudge that they felt there was too many similar shows, I think we'd probably sit here now and say, actually, it's quite different from most late ITC 60s shows, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think because of its particular sort of overarching scenario, it wouldn't have suffered by being held back. I mean, we said when we were talking about a strange report because it was delayed going into America, it must have seemed quite dated in a way. I don't think a story about a ghost really is going to date. I know that we mentioned the screenings of it being all over the shop, but this series is one of the few that had a bit of additional publicity in the fact that there was a golden shot. That was a TV series game show. There was a Randall and Hopkirk golden shot special. There was broadcast on the 26th of April, 1970. That episode of The Golden Shot doesn't exist anymore, but I am very lucky to have the surviving script of it. That episode of The Golden Shot is all based around Ken Cope as Marty, Mike Pratt as Jeff, and Annette Andre as Jeannie appearing in that. And, you know, Jeannie does introductions to the contestants. Marty's hopping in and out of the game as it's going on. I would wish that still survived. There's not even a photograph of it. It would have been a marvellous thing to see. That's incredible. I mean, that, that is a really big piece of primetime publicity because I've been looking around while we've been researching this and I've really struggled to find decent bits of information and, and decent bits of update or making ready for the series debut in TV times. There doesn't seem to be that much there. <laughs> I suppose the big talking point really with this series is the sort of split between drama and comedy. I personally like the episodes that are kind of a bit more dramatic. It's not that I don't like the comedy or anything, but I think some of them become very farcical. Murder Ain't What It Used To Be, for example, I find really painful to watch because I think it's just daft. But we know that Ken and Mike were very keen on pushing the comedy to the point that they were having confrontation with some of the directors, people like Cyril Frankel, who kept saying, play it real. They didn't want to do that. And I think that this is where the balance of this show is not necessarily quite right. I'd argue the other way. I think that creative tension is what makes it a great show, because had they gone down the Berman and Frankel route, which was, we want Raymond Chandler, I think mm. was what they said. It wouldn't have worked. I mean, this is a show where one of the partners is dead, for goodness sake. On the other hand, if you go full slapstick comedy, as in a sort of David Healy character, Bugsy Spanio, whatever he's called, I don't think it would have worked either. And I think in the end, the feeling I get now is that a lot of people find the show charming. And I think it's probably the fact that there are elements of drama, there are emotive elements, but it's also very funny. But when you look at the deaths in the series, there are at least 29 deaths and the way people die. You've got people being just gunned down in cold blood, like never trust a ghost. You've got people being 
shot and left in the back of Jeff's car because you recognize his man again. There's some really dark violence in the series. I think we've agreed already when we've been talking before this that the darkest episode is could you recognize this man again? Because not only have you got the hired guns with a double act of Norman Eshley and Dudley Sutton who've crossed over from Department S to do a similar job in this, where it takes its really dark turn is the sexual threats to Jeannie when she's held hostage. On the other side of the coin, you've got prankster comedy. You've got things like, again, in Could You Recognise, when the episode opens up, thanks to the joy of Blu-ray, you can see that somebody's done an in-joke on Mike Pratt and they've left a letter on his desk, the one that he's signing when we first see him. And it says, it's come to my attention that Mike Pratt has done such and such. And if he does this again, he will be severely reprimanded. So that's a hell of a contrast. When you look at the production schedule, scattered throughout that, are the half dozen episodes that Cyril Frankel directed. So he's pushing for drama. And then you get in a three or four episode run where they're pulling away and they're going into the comedy. And then Cyril pops back in and you've got an instant nugget of conflict. It must have been quite testing at times. Yeah, I don't get it wrong. I do like the comedy aspect of it. It's just when it kind of goes too slapstick that I find it just didn't quite work for me particularly the Bugsy Spanio character played by David Healy. I think the thing is, as Smudge has said, it doesn't work when you go too dark either. So I think, in a way, I think the episodes that really do work is when we get a little bit of balance. One of the things that is great about this series is how they made Marty appear and disappear Okay, it's very simple that you're filming a scene and you say to the actors, freeze, and then Ken Cope walks in and then you say, resume. I think actually that works really well. And if you look at it, there aren't many instances where actors react to him coming either into or out of the scene. I know there might be one or two, but generally I thought that that was done really well and very smoothly. I know with Blu-ray now you can seek those jump cuts but generally, I thought that was handled really well. I think I, the special effects in general work very well. I love the way, Jazz, you open that up with how simple that was. I think that is a significant achievement of this because you're a lead actor or you're a guest actor. You've got a camera two feet away from you. You get a freeze. Ken Cope comes in. You've got a whole chunk of dialogue, a big scene, where you've got to ignore him completely. He's... Like in some scenes, I think it's between Jenny and Jeannie. He's right behind the sofa, head between the two of them. They've got to carry on this normal scene. That is amazing concentration. I wouldn't say it's that simple. And sometimes the actors have got to literally look through him, haven't they? I was describing it in its simplest form because I'm not sure that everyone will appreciate how it was done. I know when I worked at Carlton, I did some Randall and Hopkirk DVDs and one of the bits of film footage I found, because I found a load of sort of offcuts, and one of them was a sequence where they'd obviously called Freeze. It's Money to Burn, where Jeff's car's impounded and they're doing the forensics. And there's a forensics guy underneath with a brush trying to find something. And they call Freeze and he's mid-action trying to brush this car from lying on his back underneath. And Ken Cope rolls in next to him and obviously... They then say not freeze or continue and he looks at him and then it stops. So a very well done thing for what it was. And we know, of course, that Kenneth Cope, being the joker he was, was often winding them all up at the same time. So they've got that as well. 
one thing I want to talk about quickly is the standing sets. Now, obviously, there was Randall's and Hopkirk's office and the entrance to that office. There was Jeannie's apartment. There was Jeff's flat, which I love with all his of the time psychedelic hippie posters, which kind of gives us a clue to his character. And then there was what I call the right angled staircase large set that seems to be redressed in every episode. Jeff's flat is the one that I really like. I just love the fact it's kind of open plan. There's the little kitchenette bit and there's a dining table, but predominantly it's just his bed and his guitar and his records. And, you know, like I say, the Jimi Hendrix type posters and all of that. But what amazes me about Jeff's flat is the security on it. The door lock must be terrible because there are so many episodes where either he comes back late at night or early in the morning. We're not quite sure. And there's, uh, for example, a nun sitting there or he comes in and there's (laughs) someone sat in the chair waiting for him to come back. It seems like his front door doesn't lock very well. For a detective, he's got a very lax attitude to security. I love the flat. It's the sort of flat you would love to live in. And the other thing I would get really annoyed by, not just people coming into your flat unannounced, if I were Jeff, it's this ghost who keeps breaking your fixtures and fittings, your vases, shaking stuff and pushing them on the floor. and (laughs) Goodness knows what. I think the thing is a bit like Jim Rockford with his trailer. He's got nothing worth stealing anyway, so I don't think he actually really cares. He's like a mature student, the way he lives. We should really talk a bit about the whole premise, the opening episode, My Late Lamented Friend and Partner, written by Ralph Smart. This is quite an interesting and dark opening episode to a series where one of the lead characters is killed off. I find it quite bizarre. We see him killed off in the titles and then he's killed off again later in the actual show. It is a very stark, dark episode Sorensen is utterly cold-blooded about killing his wife they arrange the killing of marty and they are prepared to kill jeff and anybody else connected with the case and that really is the chandler-esque hard-boiled thing that frankel was going for well that electrocution in the bath it doesn't get much more hard-hitting than that does it Mm, i mean that's really visceral there's a lot of good location work and reasonable back projection I thought that Happy Lee character was interesting. Is it Dolores Mantes? Mm-hmm. Because uh, the police are quite happy to blame her because she's a pop singer and she's black. And it, it's sort of understated in the episode, but I've watched that introductory episode three or four times. And I'm convinced that there is almost a sort of nod at, oh, well, that's an easy person to blame. We've all selected two episodes ourselves as our favourite two. And these aren't necessarily all the best ones, but for example, the two I've chosen are my two favourites. So I'm going to kick this off with talking about But What a Sweet Little Room, which was written by Ralph Smart and directed by Roy Wall Baker. It's got a very dark tone, this episode. The pre-titled teaser is so dark. It's got this wonderful sort of music. 
and you've got this happy late middle-aged couple driving through the country lanes to their cottage in the country and then the the man in the piece says oh I hope you don't mind being buried away in the country and at that point that's just a sort of token line and then as this scene develops and the lady in the scene is basically gassed to death and the last thing she sees as she looks out of the window was her partner the man who's driven her down to this idyllic cottage in the countryside he's digging her grave you don't get anything darker than that it's really chilling and I said you've got this wonderful music after the titles that sort of sums up Brandon Hopkirk and Marty goes to Jeff's office and Jeannie in this episode is not working for Jeff yet. And they give her something to do later on. Then you, you get this Julia Fennick, who is the niece of the lady who got killed off at the start of the episode. She comes in and gives Jeff this case. She's not around in this episode for very long before she's brutally run down. OK, it's a bad instance of back projection. But I'm prepared to overlook that for the sake of the story. It's probably the worst back projection in the whole of Randall and Hopkirk, to be fair. And again, that's really chillingly done. The guy who basically uh, runs her down then puts a drunk who he's picked up from the pub over the wheel of the car. So he's framed for her death. It's just like a catalogue of nastiness. And then you've obviously got this wonderful character in Madame Hansker, who's played by Doris Hare, who some people will know as the mum from On the Buses, who's this crooked medium who thinks that she's talking to people and it's all in with the business of finding young widows and then how can they get these young widows and bump them off and take their money. But of course, there's that lovely scene towards the end where Marty appears and has this conversation with her and she believes she's brought him back. For me, it's the best episode. It's certainly the best directed, isn't it? That scene you were talking about, the murder scene, and we actually see DeGressi digging the grave through the gas fumes. You can see them. Mm. And uh, I just think that's, that's brilliantly done. There is also some quite daring gallows humour, isn't there? Because at the end, when we think Jeff might be about to go the same way, I think he says to Marty, you better think of something quickly. He's making funeral arrangements already. And he's looking out the window, seeing the same thing again. It's wonderfully dark. It's very, very stark because as the plot unfolds, we learn that Mrs. Fenwick and Jeannie aren't the sole referrals. It, the implication is that there have been a string of referrals to De Cressy. So if, mm. basically, De Cressy is a serial killer. And that is something you don't get in ITC land. We're lucky that as to Cressy, we've got Michael Goodliffe, who was a brilliant actor. And the confrontation scene between him and Mike Pratt is so very well played. The one thing that jars with me is that odd small period of dubbing where they can't decide whether they're saying Fenwick or Fenwick. I think one of you mentioned Norman Bird earlier. And this is the comedy element of this part of the episode where he's like the guy who goes and checks out the new widows and then reports back to the Degressi character. Is she worth pursuing as in taking advantage of and finding out about their money and all of this? But then he goes back to his flat and he's doing all the stuff with the mirror and 
Marty sort of in front of him and not in front of him. But then he starts conducting the orchestra and stuff. So that's the lightheartedness in this episode, which I think is the right kind of lightheartedness and funny thing that sits well, I think, for me, for the series. The down point is the doubles. The doubles in this series, in particularly this episode, for Jeff and Jeannie and Marty are truly atrocious. It's even worse on Blu-ray. Now, I know everyone will say Harry Fielder was Mike Pratt's double and he was lovely and all of this. Yeah, I'm not saying that he wasn't or anything like that. What I'm saying is that the difference in their physical appearances are so stark. It's just ridiculous. But I suppose we weren't ever supposed to get that. Also, there's a little bit of trivia in here because there's a bit of the England v Germany 66 World Cup final there's this lovely bit as well where they get out at the embankment opposite the Houses of Parliament, which is another lovely little bit of location filming. And it's also the sort of introduction to Jeannie getting a little bit more involved in the business, because at this point, she's not working for Jeff. You do have some comedy light moments in, the, in those office scenes because Marty doesn't want Jeannie involved. Mm. And wherever Jeff looks, like out the window, when he opens the office cupboard, you know, Marty's popping up and surprising us and sort of Jeff. So there are some nice little moments of levity to go with, uh, well, as you quite rightly say, is it dark in that episode, isn't it? You've got some things that will become typical here. That beating that he takes with the crowd at the football game to dull down the noise, that's quite a rough beating. And then we get a classic example of Jeff's gullibility. When they're coming to the cottage, why aren't the alarm bells ringing that DeCressy's got a key? But in terms of production values, we've got something that is going to water down as production goes through. But here you've got the lovely set for the room itself. The other nice set is DeCressy's flat which is really his period dressed for the 60s, a really nice bat. This is also an episode where Jeff is still in his suit and he hasn't become a bit more beatnik. And you mentioned about the beatings there. Another thing I was going to mention here, this is where maybe besides McGill, Jeff Randall, with his smoking and the number of beatings he gets, must be up there pushing McGill for being number one ITC hero who gets the most cigarettes and the most into the most fights. My first episode is You Can Always Find a Fall Guy. Now, I haven't chosen this that it's a particular favourite, although I do enjoy it. I've chosen this as a representative of what is a fairly typical Randall and Hopkirk story. So the teaser sequence opens up with the music. So much is owed to this programme by the score. Jeff Randall arrives home to find a nun in his flat. Again, this is Jeff and his do you ever lock your door thing. Jeff falls for the nun because she's quite an attractive nun. It's, it's the pretty face thing again. And she sets up this meeting about the case, this case of fraud at the convent. And the other thing about this is we get some nice stock shots of a rainy day in London in Oxford Street. We get an unusual angle as Jeff walks into the office and greets Jeannie. There's a good relationship with Jeannie. A lot of Randall and Hopkirk initially was going to rest upon the working relationship between the two male leads, but there is a good relationship with Annette Andre. She's brought into the fold. 
And as the series develops, she sort of becomes the glue that holds Randall and Hopkirk together, the agency. We've got Jeff needing to use Marty's car, the famous red mini. So we get another theme in this episode that becomes relevant throughout the series, Marty's paranoia about Jeff's driving. The nun sets up this meeting about the case, this case of fraud at the convent, but she meets him halfway down the drive. Again, Jeff's gullibility. If people coming to the convent is against the rules, why did she invite him in the first place? But it's nice to see Mike Pratt out on location, out at the Grimsdyke Hotel. As the plot develops, he falls foul of Edwards, the security officer at the convent, which is really an electronics development company. Edwards manages to get into his car. Jeff even leaves his car unlocked and they have this confrontation. One of the better characters in this episode is Kershaw, because the episode revolves around the concept of industrial espionage, information being stolen, secrets. Kershaw, played by Jeremy Young, is an absolutely brilliant character. He lives on a Chelsea houseboat and he's essentially the fence. And Jeff's ranting on about him, about what he does. There's a nice little line when Kershaw comes back to him. I could give you a whole list of things that I'm not. There's some good dialogue in the scenes there with Kershaw. We get to a point where Jeff decides to threaten Kershaw even, which is an unusual thing for him. Back at the research establishment, the company, they're convinced that Jeff is the thief. Edwards manages to track Jeff down through the car registration. And of course, he's driving Genie's Mini. So that's the big twist in the plot. As we go back to Kershaw's for a second visit, and Jeff tries to get a statement of it, of Kershaw, he finally realises he's been taken for a sap. And in the end, the plot turns out that Edwards, who we've been suspecting was into the villainy all along, isn't. And it was one of the directors of the company, Mr. Yateman. There's a lovely trick shot when Jeff sees Marty in a sphere, and Jeff needs Marty for the rescue. Uh, one of the typical things that we see in the episode is Jeff gets locked up in a cellar. We're going to see this so many times throughout the entire series. So Jeff's locked away. There have been very few ghostly interventions by Marty, really, up to now. So now we all sort of fall into the big set piece finale where Marty's got to arrange for somebody to meet Jeff or get help for Jeff and rescue him. In this one, Marty comes into a hospital where there's an operation going on. The guy under the knife is a strange character actor, Edward Caddick. While he's being operated on, he's under the gas or he's on the point of death. Suddenly there's that bridge for Marty to get in contact with him and he encourages him to call the police when he comes around from the anaesthetic. So he calls the police, the police save the day and get Jeff out of the cellar. So essentially this one is a fairly standard Randall and Hopkirk plot. It's essentially a detective story with a few ghostly inserts and this is what becomes something of a pattern. But it was a good twist that the villain we suspected, Garfield Morgan as Edwards, wasn't the actual villain. The title could have been a longer one. You can always find a full guy, and normally it's Jeff Randall. That yeah. will be coming at a sort of running light motif. I thought there was a lovely emotive moment when Jeff asks if he can borrow the car. Jeannie says, Marty's car, and then corrects yeah. herself and says, oh, I suppose it's my car now. We do get those emotive moments. Smudge mentioned one earlier where at the beginning of an episode, Marty is wandering the streets at night lonely. And we do actually get moments where we go beyond sort of comic, but we haven't gone dark and we sort of got to this sort of emotional, he doesn't want to be edited out of people's lives. 
this is a the thing in the format that allows the writers to tinker and to stop the scripts getting too samey. I know I've just said this is a typical Randall and Hopkirk episode, but the thing is they can twist it. This one's directed by Ray Austin, who I thought handled the fight sequences in this episode and other episodes he did very well, although the doubles in the fights are really bad. And again, this is leather jacket, roll neck, Jeff, isn't it? One thing I thought was very comical, but not deliberately comical, was the price of how much the car was going to cost. Because at one time, Jeff says he's got his car in a garage. It's going to cost him £26 to get it out. And then he asked to borrow half the money and he gives them £12. And then when he goes and collects his car, he gives them £15. There's some sort of bad numeration going on there that I thought was quite funny. Honourable mention there to Juliet Harmer, who looks absolutely stunning as Miss Holiday, the nun, but also to Garfield Morgan, who I thought was really understated in his thing. You wouldn't want to mess with him as a security officer. He was undercurrent of, I can give you a good hide if I need to. Yeah, as you say, Kershaw and his houseboat, played by Jeremy Young, fantastic. A couple of bits of trivia there. The blue... Gimo horse statue is the same one I'm sure that's seen in the Man Suitcase Day of Execution. And the actual album he's listening to is by Claudio Aru, and it's Brahms' Piano Concerto or Concert Number no. Two. A few nice bits of location filming. There's actually Jeff and Marty in the Vauxhall in Talbot Road up in uh, Notting Hill, and it's not the doubles. The obviously right-angled staircase set appears as Yateman's business premises at Winchester Electronics. I like this episode. I think it's fun, but it's also quite a good little detective spin. And like you say, Jeff is so gullible. It's an example of where we see that Marty is in many ways a better detective than Jeff, because Marty straight away knows that she's not a nun. She's wearing eye makeup. She yeah. talked about luck, and he says... Nuns don't talk about chance or luck. And because Jeff is quite sort of sex driven throughout the show, I think it's a sort of it's a real sort of a blind spot for him. Attractive women. Yeah, I've picked out The Man From Nowhere. Again, probably a bit like Smudge. I haven't picked it out because necessarily I think it's an outstanding episode. In the case of this one, there were a number of things I liked. I should point out, obviously, it's an episode with a massive plot hole because we never find out how Sheldon, Ray Brooks's character, finds out about Marty's background well enough to pretend he is Marty. But I love the location filming here. We don't just get Woburn Abbey Gardens. We get what must be quite unique in a 60s show. We get an interior of somewhere very famous. And I think those scenes that we get inside the Woburn Abbey house are stunning. Absolutely brilliant. I do like the Ray Brooks character because if we forget the plot hole, and this is a series of plot holes anyway, I think he's rather wonderful as a con man. I know someone's going to say, well, he sounds like Mr. Ben. But I thought it worked really well. And certainly it had genie thinking, didn't it? Actually, could this be possible? There's a wonderful bit near the beginning where Jeff Randall is using an exercise machine. And we get to see these magazines full of these sort of macho action heroes. 
And I like that because Jeff Randall is not an ATC action hero. He's not muscular. He's actually pretty useless at fighting. And I like the fact that he's a very flawed character. I think that adds to the charm of him. This is an incredible premise for this episode. That startup where the man from nowhere walks in, there's a wonderful piece of dramatic tension there because you've got the man in the burning car. Jeannie, for it longing to be Marty, having her wavering doubts. Jeff stuck in the middle, knowing it can't possibly be Marty because Marty turned up within the next five minutes. The Woburn Abbey stuff opens it up incredibly. It's really good. I struggle a bit with the man from nowhere. I mean, even for Randall and Hopkirk, the concept is wide. How does the spirit of a man, the spirit of Marty, become transfigured into the alleged body of a dead man as a grown adult reincarnation happening like that? I just think we can't go into plot holes. Um, the reason <laughs> I say that is that Jeff's got no money. There's no business coming in. Yeah. Why don't they go down to casino with Marty and make a fortune and retire? Yeah. I have a problem with plot holes with Randall and Hopkirk. I don't think it's one that is as memorable as others. Not necessarily because of the Ray Brooks thing. I think the whole sort of thing of just had an accident and can't remember where the silver was. Is a bit weak. There are some good things about it, you know, where they go out to Latimer in Buckinghamshire for the Duke of Cumberland pub, which is obviously seen in Department S. My trouble is with it is the two characters who are Patrick Newell, who played Mannerin, and Michael Gwynn, who played Hyde Watson. I find them very, very spoofy. This is another one where Marty puts the dog to sleep, which he also did in the episode you chose, Smudge. You can always find a fall guy. So this is a reoccurring idea that they reuse. For me, it's okay. There are some good bits. Like we say, the Woburn Abbey stuff is fantastic. And let's say the location of Latimer and Bucks, it just kind of isn't particularly memorable genie in the shower and coming out but the new marty you know, she's as, as bad as jeff when it comes to security because she apparently she leaves the key on the latch and you know she's yeah. in the shower and this new marty just walks in and it is interesting in the fact that until sort of things really start to unravel at points genie so wants marty back that gives us emotional level that we don't often get i don't know what niggles me about the episode but it just doesn't seem fulfilling to me I don't think Marty is actually accepted totally he's dead. For him, he's still married to Jeannie. But, I mean, in terms of those sort of eccentric villains, we get those in a lot of episodes. Really? Alfie Burke and Dudley mm. Foster are very, very similar. That thing about Marty's continued emotional attachment, and that is an interesting theme. It's like the vampire theme, walking the land forever. How do you cope? Also, if you were married to Annette Andre, you wouldn't just give up just like that, for goodness sake. That'll be edited out, I know that. My next choice is Vendetta for a Dead Man, which was written by Donald James and directed rather splendidly, I thought, by Cyril Frankel. Again, this is an episode with a very dark tone. 
I mean, the opening pre-titles where this convict, Jansen, who is played by George Sewell, escapes is nighttime filming. Although the wall he jumps over is clearly a bit of cloth because you can see it wobbles as he comes over. I like the way that's done and, the, and he's hidden in the doorway away from the searchlights. He's coming out for what they call the anniversary trip, which for him is to even old scores. And Jeff's there, you know, he's picked up this girl, Adina Rone. He thinks he's going to get it on with her. But of course, Marty, as ever, comes in and spoils his fun. So she has to go. And then we get Jansen, who is at Jeff's flat. Again, how did he get in? We don't know. Perhaps because he's a bit of a villain, he's broken in. Jeannie's been out on a date. She needs to be warned because suddenly there's this new love interest, Emile, who's a very sort of smooth operator. I did notice that Emile drives Rosemary Nicole's Alfa Romeo from Department S in this. But there's lovely bits in this, especially where they go to the Bassey Fun Fair and there's the Hall of Mirrors. And Jansen is stalking Jeannie. And Jeannie's got this police protection, but because we've, she's with Emil, she wants to lose this police officer, which she does. And we're in the Hall of Mirrors. That's really well done. And I love the fact that when Jansen is what you think is next to Jeannie, and he says, we're all alone, Mrs. Hopkirk. And his head is going up and then down and shrinking. And, and then Marty comes in and cracks the mirrors, which is a sort of another Marty trick that he does quite a bit. That's fabulously done. We get the whole thing where, as the story goes on, Jansen gets hold of Emil and puts him in the meat cooler because that's his business. And we see Emil sort of slowly freezing to death. And we realise that Jansen's very cold-hearted here. He's going to kill him. I like the Sam Grimes character, who's played by Timothy West, who Jansen is sort of confiding in. There's a great fight sequence between Jeff and Sam Grimes later on. And I liked Grimes' office. I thought that was really seedy and typical, like what you'd expect. And well done there. There's the fake Marty's Mini, because I don't know if you've noticed this. There's got a, a Mini that hasn't got Marty's number plate on and it's got yellow spotlights on that is being driven by Jeannie that then changes back to the normal Marty's Mini, which is another little trivia thing. But also the ending is really quite bleak, where even Jeff sort of says to Jansen, you don't have to throw yourself off this cliff because he's basically got Annette Andre at knife point and is going to force her to fall off the cliff. And then Jeff arrives and sort of rescues her in time. But he doesn't want Jansen to go over the cliff. He wants Jansen to come back and do his time. For me, this is just another great darker toned episode, which is the kind of ones that I like. The episode benefits enormously from George Sewell. Such a good actor. Unfortunately, he normally plays villains or sort of cynical cops. But here, I thought he was superb as this sort of paranoid guy who's got out of a psychiatric wing. I also enjoyed the fact that Jeannie's gone on this date and she says it's good for my ego. You know, she needs to move on, which again, sort of one of the sort of running light motifs. I noticed the Department S frozen pigs turn up again. I would have to ask, Emile, who has a pied-à-terre above a cold storage unit? Classy, isn't he? <laughs> it is excellent it's one of the best directed episodes it's dynamic there's pace the opening teaser is really cinematic frankel lets the camera do the work the scene with sewell in the flat is brilliant it's 
a quick exposition of the plot set up and there is a real sense of threat in there. It is nice for Jeannie to have a date night. It is nice for Jeannie to be the focus of an episode. The Emil thing gives her a bit of a backstory because we hear that she knew him before Marty even. The fight in Grimes' office is lovely. It's a really good, tight, self-contained fight. On a trivia note, when Jeff and Marty are outside uh, Emil's house waiting while Sam Grimes is still inside there, if you look, somebody in the top floor of the house walks past the window as they're sat waiting, just complete trivia. There's some nice camera work in this, the nice high and wide shot when Jeannie comes into the cold store. From the scriptwriter's point of view, the lovely concept of bringing Emil to the point of death in the freezer. It, it's amazing in this episode how hard both Jeff and Marty have to be to match the threat from Jansen. But I think you both chosen an episode that explains why Lou Grade had reservations because obviously in Fall Guy, you've got this hospital patient flatlining, played by an actor who looks as if he's permanently flatlining anyway. And here with this one, you've got Emil who's literally gone blue. And there are occasions when it's almost uncomfortably close to sort of death on screen, isn't it? I don't know. I just like the menace of it. I prefer the darker toned episodes. That's just me. My other episode that I've chosen to talk about is A Disturbing Case. It was written by Mike Pratt and Ian Wilson. It's directed by Ray Austin. In the teaser, we get to see a bit of the back lot of L Street. The teaser revolves around mind control so that the victims of crime are hypnotised to partake in the crime and never even know about it. It's a nice little teaser. It just uses mostly music and image. So we have the robbery and then we cut to Jeannie and Jenny arriving on location. Judith Arthur plays Jeannie's sister Jenny and we find out that Jeff's car's been stolen and he wants to use the Mini. And of course, this gives Marty the screaming habdabs. What we do notice is as the girls come in and find Jeff talking to himself, we realise that Jenny clearly has eyes for Jeff. Then we cut down to the police inspector investigating the robberies, Inspector Nelson, and the formula was stolen. He can't believe the theft was there while Phillips was in the room. The girls consider why Jeff was talking to himself, and they plan to tape recorder in his desk to record him to see what evidence they can get. There's a set-up conversation between Marty and Jeff where the girls use it for evidence. They refer him to the Lambert Clinic, and here we get a very early reveal when we find that David Bauer is actually the villain of the piece. He's a psychiatrist who's hypnotizing his clients and organizing the thefts. Jeff comes in. Conrad explains that he wants to consult him about a businessman. Conrad forcibly sedates him. The twist now becomes with Jeff sedated, Marty is struggling to talk to Jeff. Marty suddenly realizes he's imitating Conrad and he suddenly realizes that Jeff can hear him. This sets up one of the best comic scenes in the whole series as Marty controls Jeff to escape from the clinic using Conrad's voice. There's a lovely little running bass line as Marty's directing Jeff out of the clinic. He's instructing him to fight. He takes on the uh, attendants at the clinic, knocks out Dr. Conrad and escapes. They have to escape by car, and it gives Marty a brilliant opportunity to dig at Jeff's driving again. Funnily enough, despite the fact that Conrad comes to know that Jeff's escaped, he still carries on with the next robbery. There are some nice touches when Marty forgets to do the Conrad voice, that the action stops briefly. Marty and Jeff go to the house that's being burgled. Marty controls Jeff. 
tells him he's a champion boxer and the, the scrapping shoes. There is some very good comedy in the sequences where Jeff's being remotely controlled by Marty. And it gives Mike Pratt an opportunity to really shine as a visual comedian. He's so funny in the bits where he's being controlled by Marty, where he's nodding his head and just going in that sort of robotized format. Ray Austin's direction is as reliable as ever, but the really deft touches are in the scripting. As with Vendetta, you've both pointed out how good the fight sequences are. And we haven't mentioned the fact, obviously, Ray Austin's background is as a stunt man and stunt arranger. And I think you can see the benefit here of someone who's a director who there probably aren't many stuntmen turned directors Mm. in the history of TV. And I think you can definitely see the benefit here. I mean, I agree with Smudge. This is some of the funniest comedy we get in the whole show. That whole random, turn right, open the door and all of this stuff. It's hilarious. It's brilliant. I love the fact that Marty takes advantage of the fact that Jeff is in this hypnotic state to try and reinvent his driving. You know, he's going, you're driving normally. You can do this all the time. I think some of that works great. I presume Mike Pratt probably was the vehicle behind most of the writing of this episode. And he's actually given himself a smaller part. Marty is very much at the forefront of this episode. There's a lovely bit of trivia with this episode, if you've got the Blu-rays. If you watch when Jeannie and Jenny arrive and they hear Jeff talking to Marty and they're suspicious about him, Jeff is at the filing cabinet and he pulls out this yellow piece of paper, which is a call sheet for a Randall and Hopkirk episode, which I think is a fantastic little in-gag. I don't know that at the time they were planning it, but it just tickled me because it's definitely from Randall and Hopkirk because the Randall and Hopkirk call sheets were yellow and the Department S ones were blue. And I've got some, so that's how we can recognise it. But also, yeah, it's just such a fun episode in lots and lots of ways. And I I think that this is where the comedy really, really works in the show. David Bauer, who's a sort of ITC regular and everything, I thought that he was good at it. And Gerald Flood, who was his partner, who was not really aware of what his partner, Dr. Conrad, was up to. Nice casting of Judith Arty as Jenny, and she also turns up in another episode. So that was nice that they didn't just use her once. Another trivia point is that Witty drives Stuart Sullivan's car in this episode. (laughs) I like all these little bits where Department S and Randall cross over. It's a shame there probably wasn't a crossover episode because that would have been pretty good fun. But yeah, a very popular episode and you can see why. One bit of trivia that we haven't mentioned yet. I don't know whether it's visible in this episode particularly, but in Jeff's office, there are two red box files, which are actually Mm. the B and C box files from the prisoner story, A, B and C. Well, there's also another bit of trivia. Definitely in Murder Ain't What It Used To Be in Jeff's office, they've turned the London tube map at 90 degrees. There's a shot where Marty and Jeff are talking and over Jeff's shoulder, the tube map of London has been spun so it's vertical. And there's also in a sentimental journey, there's the saint graffiti where they walk past this graffiti and it says the saint is bent. You know, there's all these things in Randall and Hopkirk that if you're prepared to sort of, you know, watch and have a look, you'll see lots of funny things. Outside the actual office building, you look at the other businesses that are mentioned on the building and Peephole Publications, which sounds fairly pornographic to me, also double up with Retirement Weekly. And then a turf accountant who offers investment consultation. 
they're just wonderful little extra touches that I think just add to the whole humour of it. I picked out when did you start to stop seeing things. I have a bit of a thing about doppelganger episodes, and I think it's a very 60s thing. Whatever 60s show you think about, there is a doppelganger episode or, or some sort of double or a replacement. I can't think of a single 60s show where there isn't one. Here, I thought it worked really well because it sort of changes the whole dynamic, for example, in the office. Suddenly we have Jeff Randall trying it on with Jeannie, which sort of not only shocks her and us, but obviously Marty. I also enjoyed the fact that Clifford Evans, who I'm so used to seeing playing rather dry roles in 60s shows, he's sort of normally a banker or respectable businessman. And here we have him literally a psychiatrist sent to the point of madness where he sees Randall's everywhere. I think the comedy works very, very well here, particularly when Marty is sort of doing his auto suggestion. You're a motor racing driver, a roaring panther, a secret agent. It's sort of silly, but it's sort of fun silly. Yeah, this episode is written by Tony Williamson and directed by Jeremy Summers. Lovely bit at the start with the underground car park at Elstree where um, Tully, who comes in, is looking for Mr. Randall and Jarvis appears and there's that long shot as he's running away and then Keith Barron, Jarvis' character, shoots him just in cold blood. And I think Smudge mentioned earlier sort of about the high body count. There's a lot of cold-blooded gun-down shootings, especially in this episode, you know, where one of the characters, Mr. Holly, who's like a personnel manager at the company where the industrial secrets are being stolen, goes to meet who he thinks he's going to meet who he thinks he's going to meet Jeff at the VA in the military uniform section. And he's shot with point blank range again by Jarvis with a silencer. It's it's just like quite chilling a, a way that lots of cold-blooded murders. You've picked out Clifford Evans. There's a bit of an ITC star cast here because you've got Ivor Dean, who's playing Inspector Large, who's clearly a nod to Teal from The Saint, which is his regular kind of ITC role at the time. You've got Clifford Evans, who is brilliant as Sir Oliver. You've got Reginald Marsh, who's been in literally every ITC show going as uh, Laker, who's the brains behind this industrial stocks and shares stitch up. Basil Dignam, who is in every ITC show going, playing the same old Basil Dignam part for sure. Keith Barron, such a strong cast. I like the fact that it is for a long time, it's not revealed that it's a fake Jeff, if you know what I mean. Mr. Hinch is his name. You're not quite sure what's going on with Jeff in this for quite a while, which I think is nicely done. You know, the sort of reveal of him being a fake Jeff is quite far into the episode. And there's a lovely bit where Marty's talking to Jeff about this. And he said, well, he's bad tempered. He's not very bright. And he makes <laughs> lots of mistakes, just like you, which I thought was classic. I wouldn't say it's a particularly fun episode. It's quite a dark episode. But yeah, I've always remembered this one and always really liked it. The comedy part comes from Marty talking to the patients, obviously, before Sir Oliver does. And, and Sir Oliver sort of going out of his mind, but eventually becoming the sort of hero of the piece. Well, you've got the lovely exchange of Marty saying, I'm running out of patience. And Jeff says, so am I. Mm. You know, it's a brilliant exchange. And I mean, we do get Mike Pratt shooting someone in cold blood. 
And for Marty, that complete shock at that moment really works dramatically. For me, one of the best bits is the opening teaser with that intrigue in the underground car park. That shot you've just described, Jazz, as he's shot as he's running away. You look at that shot in terms of cinema, that is the shot that will come out in American thrillers like The French Connection in the 1970s. That is such a good shot. The theme is a twist on, of course, who talks to who. The reveal scene with the fake Jeff when it finally comes is really good. These sort mm -hmm. of things can look really cheap, but mm -hmm. the editor has cut that really well. You actually feel he is taking the mask off, don't you? Yeah. It is an amazingly dark episode, as you say, Jazz. Very high body count. And then we get the comic finale with uh, Sir Oliver. And it's that sort of struggle, the constant struggle in Randall and Hopker, the light and darkness. Something we haven't mentioned is Marty's, for want of a better word, costume. You know, he wore a white suit with white boots, white shirt, white tie, and he also wore a wig, which if you notice in a number of episodes at the start is kind of the wrong way round. But we should point out as well that the episode The Ghost Talks wasn't actually planned. What happened here was that Mike Pratt had been out at a party and drunk rather too much after they finished the 25th episode in production. And there was going to be an episode called The Dead Don't Even Whisper as the final episode. But Mike Pratt had this accident. He was climbing up the drain pipes, fell very drunk, broke both his legs. So he had to very quickly write an episode where they set it back in effect that Marty was alive, which was a kind of nice twist in a way that they managed to get uh, an alive Marty to do a full episode. What that episode actually proves is that dying was probably the best thing that happened to Marty because the white suit is fine. In the ghost talks, he's a goddamn awful dresser. <laughs> yeah. I think it's so, quite nice that it takes us back in time. And so we can see a, a rapport with Jeannie, which mm. obviously is one thing we don't get at all in the show. I'm going to defend an episode which you will call a clunker. Can I do that? Yeah. Uh, murder ain't what it used to be. I <gasps> thought it was hilarious. I think David Healy is fantastic as Bugsy Spanio, Smiler Spaniel. I love the black and white footage of the Prohibition shootout murder the whole chuckling ghost gangster thing. And I did notice when I put something out on Twitter about it, an awful lot of other people love that episode. Mm -hmm. So it can't just be me before <laughs> you attack me. This is going to be another love grove, isn't it? Where you two don't like it when a show goes <laughs> radical. I don't think it necessarily yeah. goes radical. I just think that there's something about David Healy personally that I <laughs> find a bit annoying. I consider it a clunker. Another one that I'm not so keen on is somebody just walked over my grave. There are some nice touches to it. And I love the basement that the hippie son is in. It looks like a bicycle pump that he's spraying paint with and things like that. There's some nice touches, but I just think it's a bit of a, a nothing story. I agree with you. I think it's a pointless plot. It's actually a really good cast, but um, I thought it was really poor. It doesn't last in memory. And as I said earlier, as we drift down the production schedule, the weaknesses do start to show in the scripting. I think there's quite a few. There's Monte Carlo. It doesn't do much for me. And if I'm perfectly honest, I struggle with the ghost talks. 
I guess they didn't really have much choice there. They had to no. do something where mm -hmm. the roles were reversed, weren't they? Just because of what had happened with Mike Pratt. There were a number of episodes I could have chose, to be honest. I mean, I do like That's How Murder Snowballs, Who Killed Cock Robin. Great direction on that by Roy Ward Baker. One of the things I have noticed or I'd noticed years ago is there does seem to be a few that are kind of a bit Agatha Christie kind of like get the group of people together and kill them off one by one. You know, yeah. supposed to be thicker than water. Cock Robin's another one. Do you know what I mean? There's... Yeah, it's, it's the that... sort of kind hearts and coronets thing working through the family to get the money or whatever. Yeah. But in terms of clunkers per se, the first 13 of the production schedule, they're pretty well even. I think the only one that doesn't hang together for me is Sentimental Journey. It's a bit boring. It's badly acted. And I think another piece of the better direction, it's Ray Austin in House on Haunted Hill. When they're doing those explorations of the haunted house, how his camera moves really, really nicely. Mm. I mean, you mentioned that's how Murder Snowballs, which I could have picked as one of my two. I'm happy for anyone to correct me. I think this is just about the only time Ray Austin wrote a script for British television. And I love the whole mind reading act and that whole Jeff Randall's got stage fright. And Marty says, I can hardly die a death, can I? You know, you'll have to. And I thought it was great fun, that episode. It also demonstrates something back to the cost-cutting thing of Monty Berman, because I was fortunate enough to meet Gratzina Frame a few years ago, and she brought with her the dress that she wore as Gloria, because they had to take their own wardrobe in. Yeah, the only thing about that episode is the murderer, who is the guy dressed up as the lady, is so unconvincing. And it is, yes, yeah. It, I mean, it, it's quite, it becomes obvious, doesn't yeah. it? I have to give a shout out to Anton Rogers as Calvin yep. P. Bream, because I love the fact that this guy gets legless. And when he does, he can communicate with Marty. And I thought Anton Rogers, as he always does in ITC land, was excellent. He lifts it and you've got Kieran Moore as the villain. You've got two perfect ITC archetypes, really, from two very good actors. A shout out as well, I would say, for a, a good episode is for the girl who has everything. I've always liked that one. Lots of denim footage. Miss Moneypenny, of course. Uh, Lois Maxwell's in it. The Ghost Hunter is there. And there's another fun one. It's Mrs. Oh. Pleasance's episode by a country mile. She yeah. is absolutely brilliant in it. At the end, when the tea shop lady comes back into the office and says goodbye, it's sort of funny, but it's actually quite emotive again at the same mm. time, isn't it? Another quick honourable mention, I should say, is for the smile behind the veil. And I particularly like that because we see Jeff Randall in a white suit. Summing up, Randall and Hopkirk is probably one of the most fondly remembered ITC shows, I would say, just from my experience of meeting fellow sort of fans and stuff. I personally like say like the darker episodes, but that's just me. I enjoy things like Disturbing Case, which is a highly comic episode. It's kind of, I suppose, one of the all-time ITC classics, isn't it? I should personally end on a confession. I'd seen that introductory episode about five times and had never gone on to watch a series, simply because I thought we've had the novelty of this sort of ghost character it's just going to be constantly reusing the same material. And actually watching the whole series, I think they managed to keep it pretty fresh. And it was really enjoyable for me watching the series for the first time. It was jolly good fun overall. I mean, yeah, there, there are one or two episodes that aren't as strong. 
but for the most part, it was good fun. I think the sort of only misgiving is I think it probably deserved a better crack of the whip when it first came out. It should have been networked to give it a fairer chance because there are some very, very good performances. There are some very dark scripts. There's some very dark elements to it. It's a great thing to watch that clash between the darkness and the light within Randall and Hopkirk. And I think there's something for everybody in it. I have to say thanks to my co-hosts, Al Smudge and Rodney Marshall, for joining me again on the ITC Entertain the World podcast. As ever, I'm going to sign off and say thanks to my co-hosts and we'll see you again soon. So it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And bye and thanks very much from me. You have been listening to ITC Entertain the World podcast, Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. It was presented by Jazz Wiseman with Roger Marshall and Al Smudge. It's a bitter and twisted production for the morning after.